The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. here, 2 a.m. at Twitter's headquarters, and here is your top five at five. It is now Musk versus Twitter. The company fights off his buyout with what some see as an extreme measure. The very latest on the fast-moving fight captivating corporate America and Wall Street and what you have to say about it all. Stocks looking to get back on track after extending their losing streak and futures not providing much hope. Earnings set to be the key driver for stocks this week. With a number of high-profile names set to report, we lay out the ones to watch. American Airlines' new CEO saying, you can count on us. A pledge by the man in charge to make sure your plane actually takes off on time this summer. And will soaring borrowing costs hit the housing market? The CEO of Coldwell Banker is here. It's all happening on this Monday, April 18th, right here on Worldwide Exchange. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome from wherever in the world that you may be watching. Thank you very much for joining us, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan, and we have got an absolutely packed hour for you to kick off the week. So let's not dally and get right to your Monday money. And it looks like this. Futures, they are down across the board. Not by a lot. Dow off 78 points. The Nasdaq, once again, looks to be the bigger decliner, assuming this kind of trend holds. Nasdaq futures down just about one half of 1%. Now, overall, all the major averages are having a rough month. All are down. In fact, the S&P 500 is now down nearly 10% from its high to begin the year. So can corporate earnings turn things around? A barrage of names hitting the tape this week with 60 members of the S&P 500 and seven Dow components reporting. Names like Bank of America, IBM, Johnson & Johnson, United Airlines, Netflix, and a little company called Tesla, just to name a few. In bonds, the 10-year yield is rising again to its highest level in more than three years, overnight hitting 2.86%. And check this out, maybe your market stat of the day, maybe the week. The major stock averages and yields or government bonds are both down this year. Bonds are down as yields are up. And believe it or not, that combination, both stocks and government bonds down, has only ever happened one time before. And that was in 1994, which was also a hyper-aggressive year for the Fed to hike rates. So really an unusual and historic, and maybe not in a good way, start to the year for both the stock and the bond markets. That's that, by the way, courtesy of Evercore ISI. Or as for oil, will it keep moving higher? It's not right now. It is fractionally lower. By the way, Russian rockets hitting the western city of Lviv earlier this morning. Lviv, of course, being seen as a safe haven. It is the home of much of the western media. Our NBC News people, you've seen them coming to us every day from Lviv. So wishing them all the best. More on that coming up later on right here on CNBC. All right, let's go now around the world. A lower overnight session in Asia. You had new data from the Chinese government showing that China's economy grew 4.5% in the first quarter, though most of that growth occurred in January and February. Lockdowns really beginning in March, 
closed factories and kept tens of millions of people literally confined to their homes. And in some cities, they still are. So there is a concern that this quarter could show a major slowdown in China. By the way, trading in Hong Kong is closed for the Easter holiday and same with much of mainland Europe today. So we'll get you European trade tomorrow when it starts back up. All right, now to some of this morning's other top headlines, including news around Elon Musk not involving Twitter. Hard to believe, but true. And Bertha Coombs is here with that and more. Good Monday morning, Bertha. Good morning to you, Brian. A group of Tesla stockholders are suing Elon Musk over his 2008 or 2018 tweets rather about taking Tesla private. The group is asking a federal judge to force Musk to stop commenting on the case, claiming he is trying to influence potential jurors in a lawsuit on the matter. The shareholders are suing Tesla over money they lost after Musk tweeted he was considering taking the EV maker private at $420 per share and said he had funding secured to do so. In a statement to CNBC, Musk's lawyer said that his client was considering taking Tesla private and could have, adding the plaintiff's lawyers are trying to make a buck. Meantime, American Airlines' new CEO is vowing his company will be reliable for customers heading into the peak summer travel season. Speaking at an event with the company's pilots last week, Robert Eisen said his main priority is making sure passengers can count on American to get where they're going this summer and beyond. The comments follow the decision earlier this month by American's partner in the Northeast, JetBlue, to cut as much as 10 percent of summer flying to avoid mass cancellations and delays. And the third chapter of the popular Harry Potter spin-off series, Fantastic Beasts, not exactly roaring into its box office debut. The Secrets of Dumbledore pulling in $43 million domestically, landing in number one. But Brian, it marks one of the worst openings for the series, with the two prior films taking in $62 and $74 million in their openings. But is it really fair to compare when you're talking about pre-pandemic films, no. I don't know if it's a fair comparison. No. Also, Passover and Easter, same weekend, people inside visiting family. Let's see how things yeah. go next week as well. We'll find out. Bertha, thank you. See you in a few minutes. All right. So let's kick off this big week with one of our favorite guests, Ben Evans of Medley Global Advisors. Market notes some of the best there are out there. Ben, great to have you on the program. Really meant that. Enjoy reading your work. I want to get to Twitter in just a second because I saw your note on it. But I'd like to begin with the macro markets. You might have heard that stat I just threw out from Evercore, which is for the first time since 1994 to start a year, 28 years ago, major stock averages and government bonds were both down at this point in the year. What do you make of that? Morning, Brian. Yeah, it's an environment of that the market has to accept the Fed has to go faster in tightening than the previous cycles. And it does remind you of what happened in 94, even though the economy is very different at that time, with one similarity, and that's inflation, right, which is about the same now as back in 94. So the market, the bond market and the stock market both have to accept that the Fed has to go higher than where we ended up last time. It seems to be indicating something maybe around 3%, but could be even 3.5% of the funds rate. So I think the Treasury yields, as you're seeing this morning again, up at 286. We're going to hit soon probably 3%. Uh, we're not far away from that. And 
My guess is we're going to go back to where we were in 2018 at three and a quarter percent. So that's going to continue to put some pressure on the stock market too. That's the broad market. But I think within the stock market, there's a lot of interesting opportunities, both yeah. on the bull and the bear side. So I think this is the environment. High stock, low stocks, high yields. Well, we'll get to those opportunities in just one second. I want to quickly follow up on that since we're talking about 1994, which was a major rate hiking environment. I think the Fed raised rates two and a half percent in 1994. I guess maybe some good news for our audience is that in 1995, and I'm pulling the numbers out of my out of the air, so you'll forgive me if they're not perfect. The Dow rose about 33 percent. So. Just because we're in this kind of environment, does that necessarily mean the market can't later on do well? Or is this a very different situation? Well, I think there's some analogy to 95. I mean, what happened then, too, was that the Fed just simply took enough action to get that inflation rate back down. And that is still in the bond market, too. If you look at inflation expectations, they haven't really broken out so materially. So... There's some expectation that, yes, the Fed has to move the Fed funds rate up much higher, but it doesn't mean that inflation, for therefore, not, cannot moderate over time. I think that is the scenario for 95. You get moderating inflation next year. That is your soothing backdrop, backdrop to the stock yeah. market. Ultimately. So I think we could be heading that way, Brian. Caveat is here, of course, as you mentioned in the opening segment, we do have this Ukraine situation still very lingering. We could put a lot of yeah. pressure on the energy markets, right? So that's your inflation story. Yeah, there was no war in Southern Europe in 1994, at least in Ukraine anyway, and, and uh, energy rocketing higher now, unlike 94. Uh, you said interesting opportunities, been out there. Where are some of those opportunities as you see them now? Well, I look at several things, Brian. I, I think that, one, the energy market continues to be you know, in play. And if you look at, for example, oil servicing companies versus big oil, there's a huge gap in valuation. You would think that oil prices don't really come off so far, let's say all the way back to $50 a barrel or so, despite all the efforts to try to bring up supply. So I think big oil companies are, I think, undervalued relative to servicing. Then we deal with the reopening. Yeah. Uh, we've talked about many years, many times now, but the global reopening is still there. You know, China will reopen as well, too. So I think that's the other play in, uh, at the moment in the airlines, hotels and leisure sector. Yeah, well, listen, we hope that China reopens at some point soon because that means that the, the, their, their COVID lockdowns are over, people are safe, people are healthy, and sort of the world, even over in, in China, sort of gets back to more normal. Ben Emmons of Mended Global Advisors, been a real pleasure to get you on to kick off the week. Thank you very much. Thank All right, you, folks, we are just getting going on this very busy Monday. You're welcome. And when we come back, is oil heading to 150 or even higher Nine Point Partners, Eric Natal, joining us live to lay out the real imbalance that may be coming to the market with some stocks that he loves right now. And much more on Elon Musk's Twitter takeover bid. Axios' Sarah Fisher has the latest on the fight. Analyst Angelo Zeno talks the stock and what you should do with it. And your morning RBI is what you think about it all. Stick around. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, welcome and welcome back and good Monday morning. Let's talk energy. And there is growing chatter that the European Union is weighing some kind of phase-in ban on Russian oil. This, the continent, deals with its ongoing energy crisis, where prices for electricity and natural gas are often five times what we are paying here in North America. Oil remains above 100 bucks here and 110 bucks in Brent crude in Europe. And your next guest says the growing sanctions on Moscow, along with existing structural issues and underinvestment, are setting the stage for an even bigger price spike. Eric Nuttall, a senior portfolio manager at Nine Point Partners, joining us either either very early or very late from Western Canada, Calgary, I believe, Eric. Either way, we appreciate it. Thank you for getting up or staying up um, and, and talking to the world right now here on CNBC. Uh, structural underinvestment has been a thing four years. But is it finally coming home to roost? China will reopen at some point fully. And when that happens, what do you think could happen with oil demand? You make an excellent point. So here we had uh, demand back to pre-COVID levels prior to the, the Shanghai and other Chinese lockdowns. But as many people know, the real story is around the chronic underinvestment on supply. What we are in now is a post-US shale hypergrowth world where Investors have had to ensure the worst bear market in history. And so what are we saying to those companies, those shale companies? Don't you dare grow. Don't you dare repeat the sins of the past because it's my time to get paid. And I'm going to get paid with special dividends and share buybacks. We're seeing OPEC spare uh, capacity exhaustion due to those same common reasons. Underinvestment over the past six, seven years where they've had to uh, adhere to maintaining social spending. Otherwise, you get regime change ultimately. And then here we have the global super majors where ESG investors like Mission Accomplished, what they've successfully done is inject so much uncertainty and fear. And the fear of peak demand is leading to the reality of peak supply because these guys stopped spending in 2014. Here we have the oil price back to 2014 levels, and yet spending is down by half. And it takes four, five, six years to bring on a mega project. And so it's this demand surge, especially with travel-related surge later this year, combined with investors telling short cycle don't you dare grow. And then you've yeah. got a long cycle where the cupboards bare. All of those big projects sanctioned an air of $100 the last cycle have now come on. And so, yeah, I do think we're in a structural. But oil production. For, for okay, I was going to say, though, the oil production estimates here in the States, the EIA saying we're going to get back to 13 million. We are seeing rig counts up in Canada where you are. We are seeing production gently nudge higher. So at least here, we are seeing that tick up. Do you think then it sounds like that could be counterbalanced or at least not balanced out as the world grows 
by what's happening with many OPEC nations, which because they've kind of let things go, they can't even make some of their quotas. Absolutely. What we're seeing is in March, seven of the 10 biggest OPEC members were underproducing their quota. And so it's further evidence that you, what you have is a spare capacity issue. We're looking for U.S. shale growth this year of about 800,000 barrels per day. That's constrained by labor shortages and it's constrained by steel shortages and by investors saying, again, you, you need to uh, rename growth. You dare not repeat the sins of the past. You need to pay out that special dividend. And so in a market where we were undersupplied by about a million and a half to two million barrels per day, you've got this SPR release, which is obviously just politics heading in, into the midterm election. But we have a structural challenge going forward. And as a guy, like I spend every waking hour between my kids and my job trying to and you know trying to figure out where exactly do the necessary necessary barrels going to come from? Because demand we will all be consuming over for the rest of our lifetimes. This false narrative that we're all driving electric cars tomorrow and this is a sunset industry is bogus. And yet it's it's perverted people's minds yeah. into, you know, how much should I be investing for boards? And as investors, what should I be valuing long-dated reserves when if we're not using this stuff in three to four years, why would I dare put any value on it? So yeah, it's 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 this very special time uh, where you know we have structural supply challenges and there's no easy fix. Leave us with a a name that you love. I know one of them is Synovus. Trades there, trades here. It's had a heck of a run off its off its pandemic lows, Eric, from two and a half or whatever <laughs> to seventeen and a half. Why is why is CVE still a name that you like? Yeah, it's it's funny. You look at any stock chart and you say, well, geez, how can I possibly own an energy stock? Energy stocks today are cheaper than where they were in the March, April 2020 lows because using the, not even the current oil price, use $100. Here you have a company with at least 30 years of reserves, and yet it's trading at a 30% free cash flow yield. They're moderating growth, like almost barely no growth. They're buying back shares. I think you could see a meaningful increase in the dividend once they report their Q1 earnings. And so I say, okay, well, I'm, I'm paying less than three times enterprise value to cash flow at $100 oil. I've got 30-year reserves, so I'm getting a free call on 27 years of 30% free cash flow yields. And all of these companies are saying the same thing. It's now time for the shareholders to get paid with buybacks and very, very meaningful dividends going forward. And going forward, we are watching CVE as well as the macro markets. Eric, really appreciate you coming on the program. Let you get back to bed perhaps, Eric. Take care. Have a great day. Thank you very much. We are waking them up in Alberta. All right, on deck, your morning RBI on what all of you out there think about Twitter, Musk, and the would-be deal. Plus, big bank earnings failing to impress so far. Will Bank of America turn that around or smaller banks the place for your money? That's all ahead. Stick around. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. 
FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, welcome back. Big bank earnings wrapping up with Bank of America rolling out today. And so far, the big bank numbers, eh, they've been less than impressive. But are the biggest banks really the place that you want to be invested right now? Let's bring in Gerard Cassidy of RBC Capital Markets. Gerard, welcome back. Uh, first off, with the big banks, I guess we'll call them the big seven, the last is ready to roll out today, Bank of America. Do you expect to see anything meaningfully different than what we have seen from J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Goldman, and others? Brian, no. I, I think you're right that the biggest banks have certainly had some mixed trends this quarter, especially, as you know, in the capital markets area, the investment banking numbers have been adversely impacted by market conditions for all of those players. Now, the trading numbers haven't been as, as weak as we would have thought, but the investment banking side has been. The consumer side and the traditional banking areas are the areas that are doing quite well. <coughs> yeah, I mean, these biggest banks, Gerard, when you look at a 5% mortgage rate, by the way, we've got the CEO of Coldwell Banker coming up here in a few moments on on housing and real estate, we've got investment banking, which seems like it's it's starting to roll over just a bit, uh, balancing out sort of the core banking business with those things. How does it ultimately play out? Is it sort of the anchor around their ankle? Yeah, no, it's, it's a really good question, because when you look at the outlook for investment banking, it is still under quite a bit of pressure. And even though backlogs are have been built up, um, it'll be interesting to see if market conditions allow a number of these companies, for example, to go public. But the real, I think, core part of their business, which is traditional lending, particularly, Brian, commercial and industrial lending, that commercial lending is where the strength is. You saw it in the number of banks announced last Thursday and Morgan on Wednesday. And that's being driven by two factors. One, capital expenditures, and two, inventory rebuilding. So that's been the focus. But you're right, the residential mortgage area, that's another area that's been quite weak because of the high mortgage rates. Yeah, yeah and, and, we, and we love to use the term bank like they're all the same, like some community <laughs> bank with five locations is the same as Goldman Sachs, right, Gerard? I mean, the yeah. term is a catch-all. These companies are very different. Is this why you prefer some of these small, they're not small, they're not small by, Fifth Third is not small, PNC is not small, but they also don't have an army of thousands of commodity and fixed income and currency traders. Brian, one of the, that's so insightful because not everybody fully understands that. They just lump all the banks together and you are so right, they are so different. And so the regional banks, the ones you mentioned, Fifth Third, PNC, um, Huntington, all of these names, MNT Bank, are traditional regional banks, and they don't have the big, com you know, commodities trading area. They're not big fixed income players. So as a result, they are better banks in the traditional banking business. And when rates are moving higher because the Federal Reserve is raising short-term interest rates, these banks' spreads and margins will widen, which will help their profitability over the next six to twelve months, in our view. Well, we know that you have got a long day ahead with Bank of America rolling out, but we're going to watch some of those middle-sized names that you like, the PNCs, the Fifth Thirds of the world. Gerard Cassidy of RBC, really appreciate you getting up, Gerard. Thank you. Have a great day. Take care.
You too, Brian. Thank you. All right, coming up, <clears throat> red pill, blue pill, poison pill? We'll explain the Twitter board strategy to fight off Elon Musk. Plus, Axios' Sarah Fisher is here with the latest twists in this can't-look-away story. And as a reminder, if you haven't already, be sure to follow the Worldwide Exchange podcast available on all major podcasting platforms. We'll be right back after this short break. Grab a coffee. We're back in two minutes. Twitter going extreme and fighting off Elon Musk, but will its latest move, move hurt the stock even more? Stocks hurt overall as rising rates and soaring inflation crush investor sentiment. But can a huge week for earnings this week turn all the bears into bulls? And will rising rates rock the red-hot housing market? The CEO of Coldwell Banker Real Estate is here with what he's seeing right now. It's all happening on this Monday, April 18th. This is Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Uh, welcome or welcome back, everybody. Hope you had a great Easter and Passover. I am Brian Sullivan, and we have got an absolutely huge half hour left in Worldwide Exchange today in what is just going to be an incredibly busy day all day here on CNBC. Let's get right to it. Your Monday money looks like this. We are seeing Dow futures. Those losses have accelerated a bit. Dow futures down about Two-tenths of 1%. NASDAQ futures, once again, look like their tough April, really tough year, is going to continue. NASDAQ futures off 106, so down about one-half of 1%. The major averages, by the way, all having a rough April, which is traditionally one of the better months for the stock market, certainly not this year. But we do have a huge week of earnings on tap. 60 members of the S&P 500, seven Dow components, some of those are obviously the same company reporting, and maybe those numbers can turn things around. The 10-year yield, it continues to go higher. In fact, 10 years at its highest level in more than three years, hitting 2.86 overnight. We are getting closer to getting back to 3%. And we hit this at the beginning of the show, but that's even earlier. So if you missed it, we're going to repeat it. The major stock averages and the prices of government bonds are both down at this point in the year. For the same time, the only time that has ever happened before that stocks and government bonds have fallen together was in 1994. And according to Evercore ISI, normally stocks go up and then buyers go into bonds. So bonds go up, not this year. We are seeing stocks and bonds both sell off, have not seen this kind of start to a year in 28 years. By the way, that was also an incredibly aggressive Fed hiking cycle back then. All right, now to the fast-moving and fascinating story around Elon Musk and Twitter. There have been a number of new developments over the weekend, so let's quickly recap what has happened. Elon Musk, of course, made a bid to buy Twitter and take it private for $54.20 per share, a 38% premium at the time. Twitter CEO and board immediately tried to block any takeover by creating what's called a shareholder rights plan, better known as a poison pill. You're going to hear that term a lot. And although a lot of lawyers may try to make it sound all fancy, a poison pill is a relatively basic thing. In this case, if somebody like, you know, Elon Musk were to buy 15% or more of Twitter without the board approving, other shareholders immediately get to write to buy more Twitter stock at a discount. That's it. So the idea is that while the poison pill cannot actually 
stop a deal. It can make it so much more expensive that any buyer, Musk or anybody else, ultimately just walks away. Now, the defense is not perfect and it is not used that often, but it can work to block takeovers. Remember, 10 years ago, Netflix and Carl Icahn had a similar fight and a poison pill defense adopted by Netflix. Icahn eventually walked away from Netflix, although a lot richer for it. Now, Musk clearly is not happy with this move or Twitter's board. In fact, Musk tweeted over the weekend, wow, with Jack departing, the Twitter board collectively owns almost no shares. Objectively, their economic interests are simply not aligned with shareholders. End quote. Jack, of course, being Jack Dorsey, the Mercurial co-founder and former CEO of Twitter. So will this poison pill or other defense work in fending off Musk or, by the way, any other buyer? Now, time will tell. But let's be clear. Unless the Twitter board has a higher offer, thinks it will get a higher offer, or fundamentally believes Twitter is worth more than Musk's offer, it does face potential crippling shareholder lawsuits. If it does nothing, Musk walks away and the stock sinks. And convincing some the company is worth more than Musk's offer could be tough. The average target price of all the analysts who cover Twitter is just $45 per share. That according to FactSet. That, of course, nine bucks and change below Musk's offer. And only three of all the analysts, about 40 that cover Twitter, have a higher price target than the Musk bid. And one of those is just 50 cents higher. So Twitter's board could face an uphill fight if Musk gets more aggressive with his offer. All right, certainly let's dive more into details that have come out over the weekend. There is so much more to the story. Sarah Fisher of Axios been doing some great reporting, as always, and joins us now. And Sarah, I feel like nobody really enjoyed the holiday. Everybody sort of, I think, worked all weekend long. So we appreciate you coming on. To you, what has been the most striking development over the last 42 to 72 hours? 48 to 72. Well, there are a few reports over the weekend, Brian, that Elon Musk may be joining with Silver Lake, a private equity firm that he's worked with in the past to potentially help finance a bid to take it private. And the reason that matters is because if they get to a point where the Twitter board enacts a poison pill and it makes it more expensive for Elon Musk to come in, we already knew he would have to liquidate some of his shares in Tesla, most likely to be able to afford such a bid. Now, if there's reports out that he's going to seek help with some private financing, that makes it more realistic for him to come in without having to liquidate too much of his own personal wealth. And that seems like a pretty possible outcome, a possible plan B for Elon Musk in this situation. We're probably going to find out in the next few days whether or not that becomes his course yep. of action. You're making such an important point because we always say Elon Musk, the world's richest man. But a lot of people may not understand. It's not like he's walking around with, you know, 280 billion in his wallet, although maybe he is and good for him if he is. It's tied up in equity. A lot of that is wrapped around it by debt. Even Musk, as rich as he is on Tesla stock, would have to make some financial sacrifices, would he not, to get a deal of this size done? 
Oh, absolutely. And Tesla has been a rocket ship over the past few years. So liquidating out of that stock is not an easy decision for someone like Elon Musk. But you have to remember, Elon Musk is not somebody who de-escalates. And so when he said on the TED Talk stage in Vancouver last week that he has a plan B in place if the board doesn't approve this takeover plan, or go further, right, and enact a poison pill, you should believe him. And it seems like these reports are suggesting that the plan yeah. B is that he's going to get some of that private financing. I think this is going to continue to make big headlines this week, Brian. Okay, he's not the only one. The irony is, Sarah, is that we're talking about a fight for Twitter, and of course then we're quoting everybody on Twitter, which maybe I think kind of is the point. It kind of shows the power that that platform has. The, the most bizarre tweet of the weekend. Now, Jack Dorsey, he's an interesting guy. Obviously, he's, you know, he's got the long beard. There's stories of whatever you want to believe about Jack Dorsey stepping down. Somebody tweeted at him about the board of Twitter. And by the way, he's leaving the board. It's the company he co-founded. And he responded with this tweet. It's always been the dysfunction of the company. That's Jack Dorsey. So it seems to me, unless I'm misreading something, Sarah, that Jack Dorsey is kind of slamming the board of the company that he founded and the very board he used to sit on. I find this, I don't think I've ever seen or heard anything like this in 26 years. Yeah, well, let's peel this back a little bit. We know that Jack Dorsey actually admires and likes Elon Musk. Now, I know that that sounds crazy given the circumstances, but it might be that Jack Dorsey sees Elon Musk as somebody who you potentially want in as an ally. Now, does that mean that Jack Dorsey endorses a full takeover from Elon? I'm not sure. But perhaps what he's signaling there is that there's a different maneuver, a different way the board could have handled him. I think the way to think about this, though, in terms of Jack Dorsey signaling Twitter's long-term dysfunction is Twitter for the past few years, and especially in the past few months, has gone through a ton of changes. Think about it. Elliott Management, the private activist firm, essentially pushed Jack Dorsey out. He resigned, but our reporting suggests that it was under pressure from Elliot. You bring in a new CEO. He's an engineer, a CTO. He's trying to grapple with a lot of policies. We have a war going on in Ukraine where there's a lot of misinformation. And now to have yep. this come in, it seems like what Jack Dorsey is saying is that Twitter has always existed on lots of dysfunction and lots of changes. It doesn't necessarily mean that it needs a huge new injection of life. That's the way I read that tweet. Now, someone could misinterpret it or interpret it a different way. I think what Jack Dorsey was saying is, look, I don't know that we necessarily need a massive takeover on Twitter in order to help it survive changes. Twitter's always been pretty adaptable. And the last thing I'd say, Brian, is Twitter made a yeah. pretty pivot a year ago in its business model. I think that's where you're getting a lot of this pressure right now. Maybe they're not seeing the types of returns yeah. that they want in their subscription business. Yeah, certainly great points. And then, by the way, that's the, the new CEO is a pretty young guy. He's under 40. He made some comments a couple years ago at a conference saying something like free speech is not our priority. Whatever he meant by that, that's kind of getting bandied around and people are going after some of these comments. This fight, no doubt, anywhere nearly close to done. Sarah Fisher of Axios, thank you very much for coming on the program. Really odd stuff there by Jack Dorsey. By the way, we'll get more on the stock side with Angelo Zeno in just a couple of minutes. But coming up after this short break, the CEO of Coldwell Banker is here with the impact of higher rates on housing and the one thing that all homeowners should be doing right now 
but most aren't. All right, welcome back. Let's talk real estate. Home buyers traditionally come out this time of year. Checkbooks in hand. Did you know that about 40% of U.S. home sales occur between March and June? We did not, but now we do. Maybe that's a good RBI. Anyway, the red-hot housing market of the past two pandemic years could be hitting the brakes a bit. Mortgage rates have surged up from 3% to 5% in just over three months. And another stat for you, that is the quickest move by mortgage rates in 35 years. Let's talk more now about all this and something all you homeowners out there should be doing but aren't with Ryan Gorman, CEO of Coldwell Banker Real Estate. Ryan, it's great to have you on. Really critical time with mortgage rates doing what they're doing. Spring, the spring selling season, also known as spring, it has sprung and it's on us. Uh, Ryan, what are you hearing from all your agents out there across America? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, definitely spring is a busy time of year. This is when the listings come on. One of the greatest challenges lately, of course, has been a lack of listings. Too little inventory. We're selling whatever can come on the market in as little as 18 days on average. So we've got very, very high velocity. Managed to sell over 6 million homes for the past couple of years. So we're certainly seeing a lot of transaction throughput. But with inventory so limited, you've got prices continuing to increase because buyer demand is just so very strong. It's strong and it's fundamental. It's for all the right reasons people are looking to buy, looking to upsize, looking to maybe get a second home that they can use a lot more now that they're working a little bit more remotely. And we can see that trend continue even with some of the pressures you mentioned, including rates. I think the, the pace of buying, as we've seen, by the way, 5% used to be considered low. I mean, I'm not that old, Ryan, but I'm old enough to remember even like 10 years ago, 5% was like, wow, that's a bargain. Now suddenly it's expensive. 5% is the same number. But people buy homes, as you know, on the monthly payment normally, not the overall Mm -hmm. cost. So do you think price increases have to either regulate or prices in some markets may have to come down a bit so that monthly payment stays in a certain range? Well, certainly price increases need to regulate at some point in time. The year-over-year price increases that we've seen, 16, 17, 18% year-over-year, longer term, that's not sustainable. That's not to say that pricing is not appropriate today. I think it is, and I think it reflects fundamental demand. We're simply not building enough homes to actually meet the overall needs that we have in the economy. Probably five to six million more homes, if they were constructed today, could be sold and we'd come close to actually meeting demand. So with prices increasing on mortgage rates, for instance, relatively quickly, yes, it is a rapid increase, but we also have a rapidly moving market, a very high velocity market. I think the rate increase will tamp down demand just a little bit. However, I've got to say, if you've been in the market recently, you've seen we're looking at multi-offer situations pretty much everywhere. We're looking at high cash down payments. In many cases, the winners in the bids are cash buyers who are not impacted by these higher interest rates. So for those of you out there who are thinking, well, I hope this means demand will go away and I can operate as a buyer in a more normalized marketplace, I wouldn't hold your breath. I continue to see demand very strong. Yeah. This is incredible stuff, too, because everybody always likes to talk about home values, but you just had some research, and I couldn't believe the numbers. I kind of rubbed my eyes and did a double take, Ryan. 46% of homeowners don't know what their home is worth? How is that possible? Yeah, you have lots of information out there that would seemingly tell you what your home is worth. But I would say now more than ever before, you really need a trusted advisor, an expert on today's market to be able to inform you of that. That is not a sales pitch for Cobalt Banker or for the real estate industry in general. 
truly, if you sit down with a professional today and understand what a well-positioned, well-marketed version of your home is worth in today's market, literally in this moment in your neighborhood, I think you're going to be very surprised. And that stat comes from a lot of those individuals, homeowners who thought they had a rough sense, but once they had an actual sense of the real dollar amount, it did two things. One, it educated them in a pretty big way, very surprising, like you said, kind of rub your eyes once you actually know the number. But two, it led them to action. It led them to say, wow, if that's really the value of your home today, maybe we can accelerate some of our plans. Maybe we can move forward to what we were planning on doing five years from now and leverage some of that value that we have today. So I do believe as more become aware of what the value of their home is today, yep. I encourage all of you to, to contact a Cole Baker agent or someone else to help you with that. I do think inventory is going to grow as a result of people becoming more educated. Yeah, and maybe if people think that the peak or close to it is in, they'll put their house in the market because they've been waiting to make more money on that house. We'll see. Ryan Gorman, it's an important topic. Appreciate you coming on, Ryan. Have a great day, a great week. We'll talk to you soon, I hope. Thank you. So much. All right, on deck, CFRA's Angelo Zeno on what to do with Twitter stock right now amid all the Elon drama. Plus, your morning RBI and what you have to say about must bid to buy the company. And all April, we are celebrating Financial Literacy Month as we head to break. Here's our friend Terry Firestone with how financial literacy can be a great equalizer. I think financial literacy is important for this country because it's a great equalizer. It allows people to be independent. It gives people a playing field because they understand how to deal with their money, the importance of saving, income, cash flow, and debt. And if you don't have that, you create a class of people that do understand and those that do not. And that is not what democracies are about. Time for today's most random but interesting thing. And this morning, it's going to be all about Twitter and Elon Musk. I mean, did you expect anything else? And it's actually Twitter polls about Twitter feels kind of meta anyway, because we want to know what you think about a bunch of big topics and debates around the story. So we launched a bunch of Twitter polls. And first up, we asked this, should Twitter be treated and run like a public utility? And what we meant by that was whether it's more of a normal company that can do it at once like everybody else, or should it be more regulated given its outsized influence over the media? Well, you guys are pretty clear on this one. 72% of you said, no, it is not a public utility and shouldn't be run like one. Next up, and kind of in the same vein, we asked this fill-in-the-blank question. Quote, the answer is probably somewhere in the middle, but if you had to pick one, Twitter is more of a social platform or a news distributor. Well, nearly 59% of you said it's actually the latter, a news distributor, which is interesting could have ramifications for regulation, especially if members of Congress feel the same way. Now, both of those first two polls are a little esoteric, we know. And that was kind of the point, one to get into your head a bit. But finally, we just got straight to the heart of it. And we asked this in our third poll. Bottom line, does Elon Musk eventually take over Twitter? A simple yes or no question. And a little surprisingly, 59% of you again said no. Musk does not win Twitter. Now, given Musk's history of success, we would have thought the answer might go in the other direction. And that's a poll the Twitter board might be very happy to see because they are going to need shareholders on their site 
if this fight with Musk, or by the way, another buyer, and there could be one, accelerates. However it plays out, this entire Twitter Musk saga may not be random, but you gotta admit, it sure as heck is interesting. All right, so let's stay right there. And as we highlighted earlier in the program, the average analyst price target is just 45 bucks per Twitter share, with only a couple of analysts above Musk's 54.20 per share offer. One of those is your guest right now. And that is Angelo Zeno, Senior Equity Research Analyst at CFRA. He has a $55 target, and he actually just downgraded the stock to a hold. Angelo, great to have you on. Really important time. Why the downgrade? So, you know, in our eyes, just the risk reward just wasn't there anymore, to be honest with you. Um, you know, we, we downgraded the stock early Thursday morning. Stock was trading low 50s, high 40 range at that time. And essentially, you know, we came out and we told investors, hey, listen, essentially puts a cap to some extent on the stock. Um, sure, there could be potentially a, a, a plan B option, a kind of higher revised offer from Musk or potentially another bidder out there. But I think at this point in time, that's kind of all um, you know, hearsay in many respects. And our view at this point in time is, um, especially with this poison pill announcement um, over the extended holiday weekend, I, I just yeah. think at this point in time, it's just, you know, we just would rather have investors kind of sit on the sidelines and, and wait for things to play out. Poison pills are something that we used to talk about, Angelo, about 20 years ago. Haven't seen a high-profile one since Carl Icahn and Netflix got into a fight literally 10 years ago in 2012. Uh, it's kind of an extreme tactic. It can work. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but what do you make of it? What, is it? what does it show about Twitter's board? Why are they so afraid of Elon Musk? Well, listen, I think as far as, you know, the, the board here, I think they fear at the end of the day, if Musk does kind of win out here, um, gets the, gets his hands on Twitter, I, I think you see, you see a massive overhaul uh, within the company, within the management team, within the board. Um, so, uh, you know, I think there's also a lot of fear out there on whether or not Musk um, will be able to kind of do um, what, he set, what he set out to do. And, and, the, and the problem becomes, um, with Musk is he's got so much on his hands right right now. Um, a big reason why Dorsey is actually leaving the company, stepped down as CEO of the company, is because he had both Block and uh, Twitter. Many people believe that he wasn't able to kind of run Twitter properly. Yeah. So I think you get a lot of that with Musk as well. Um, and, you know, the other point I'll make here, as far as the responsibility of the board, we actually think the, the, the price being offered here is an actually great price for shareholders out there. Um, the, and you know, we also look at the valuation out there, and I think it, it's very difficult to kind of get anywhere near yeah. north of $60. Um, so our view is from a shareholder perspective, this is actually a pretty enticing price. Well, and by the way, we, we only have about 20 seconds left. The stock's eight bucks under the, the offer price, so the market doesn't believe a deal is going to happen. If it doesn't, Musk walks away and the stock goes down, Angelo, Twitter's board and their, and their CEO, they're in big trouble. They're going to be sued by, by all the lawyers. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think a big reason you have this poison pill is it kind of buys them time to hopefully find another another bidder out there. But I think you're absolutely right. This is a stock that continues to, to grind lower, potentially into that low $30 uh, price range without another bidder out there. Yeah. Angelo Zeno, CFRA. I'm sure you haven't been busy at all in the last couple of days, Angelo, so we appreciate you taking some time for us. Thank you. Have a great Monday. Take care.
All right, folks, how was about that? We told you it was going to be an action-packed hour. How about that? There was a lot going on there. We will see at the same time, 23 hours from now, tomorrow on Worldwide Exchange. But for now, we'll leave you with stock futures down, oil a bit flat, but the Twitter saga still rolling on. Squawk and the gang picking up all your coverage next. Have a spectacular day. Take care. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.